The Guardian. Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, the simplest, most powerful website creator that helps you make headlines with your own stunning online presence. Explore elegant templates, Getty image integration, and more at squarespace.com and use the code Guardian to get 10% off. What does the term nature writing mean to you? For the great outdoorsman Alfred Wainwright, it meant a dedicated attention as both writer and artist to a small area of the northern English countryside, producing a seven-volume pictorial guide to the Lakeland Fells. Last year, a prize was set up in his memory and its second winner has just been announced. He is John Lewis Stemple, a writer and farmer whose book Meadowland, the private life of an English field, paints a portrait of an even smaller patch of ground, a single meadow on his farm on the English-Welsh borders, which he observes through a single year, from his first sighting of a badger rootling through the January snow to his final encounter with the local fox in the dog days of December. John is here with me in the studio, along with Thwaite Wainwright Prize judge Nigel Roby, who handily works for, not works for only, but owns the trade journal, The Bookseller, which we know and love on this programme, and so can give us the bigger picture on what seems to me to be a bit of a boom in nature writing. Welcome to both of you, and very warm <coughs> congratulations to you, John. Thank you very much. Was it a, a surprise? It was a total surprise. I, I was asked to do sort of um, various things in preparation, should I win? And I didn't think they implied to me. So uh, I didn't do any preparation at all. In terms so you didn't of kind of have your speech sticking no, out of your I back pocket? No, It was a very strong uh, shortlist, which is kind of, you know, I think uh, the proof really of how well nature writing is going uh, in Britain. We'll get on to that a little bit later. But I said you're a farmer, but you've written a lot of books and not all of them about nature. You've written quite a few <coughs> books about the First World War, haven't you? So how much time do you actually get to farm? Well, the thing is, you see, um, farmers were told to um, diversify a few years ago. And so sort of ideally, I would farm full time and maybe do sort of a bit of bed and breakfast on the side. But my wife pointed out that basically, as a sort of host, I have less patience than Basil Fawlty. Um, so it didn't seem a particularly good way of going to kind of um, you know, create a kind of additional income. So um, you know, I am writing books. You're right. But do the sort of farming where you're not averse to actually picking up a hoe if the machinery fails. No, no, no. no, no. Fails I, I, I am a, an utter peasant farmer. I probably couldn't afford, you know, the um, £120,000 tractor you, you see um, blocking the lane. And I probably wouldn't want to go in one anyway, because I think one of the things that really killed the experience of, of farming is really in the 1960s and 1970s when it's like putting cabs on everything. So farmers are never, no longer in contact with kind of nature. And when you're just actually in what is kind of mobile office, you are really losing kind of contact with nature. And so I really wanted to go back to kind of farming that I grew up with. 
um, because you know um, a I find it more pleasant for myself. But I think you know only when a farmer has that kind of relationship with the land is the farmer really looking after the land in the way the land needs to be looked after. You are a born and bred farmer. You're not a gentleman farmer who's just bought a little oh, small holding. Oh, I love to be a gentleman farmer. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, and I come from you know um, my um, family of um, this is really embarrassing. My family of um, farmed in Herefordshire for nine hundred years. For nine hundred years. Yeah. Well. We, we don't have, um, as I always say, we don't have a get up and go in my family. We have get up and stay. <laughs> now, I mentioned December at the beginning. There's a lot of weather in this book and, and some of it is bad, but there is also a lot of summer in the middle. So will you read us a bit of April, please? I will read you a bit of April. And um, there's about 50 inches of rain <laughs> in the area where I live. But actually, April tends to be, in fact, one of the, one of the better and drier months. <clears throat> April, the month of greening of green shift, when everything bursts into leaf and growth. Squatting by Bankfield Hedge, taking a spirit-level perspective towards the river, it looks as though the floor of the field has risen by two inches. Actually, my eye is not so far out. I have my ruler with me. The grass has grown in the spring flush by an inch a week over the last fortnight. Behind me in Bankfield, the ewes and lambs are feasting on the verdancy, the lambs breaking off to play king of the castle on the fallen trunk of the elm, which lies like a tossed-away dog bone and which nobody in 30 years has got around to moving. Such are the unintentional conservational benefits of laziness that the prone elm hosts beetle colonies galore. The foxes have been digging them out, and the wing cases, elytra, in their scat, dumped on the tussock by the gate, catch the last shards of sun. After a while, the unknowing lambs in their evening gangs realise they've become separated from their mothers and start up with plaintive calling. All down the valley, lambs take up the mayday, so it reverberates around the hills. The Victorian naturalist Dodrich Hudson would spend a whole day in spring just admiring grass. To quote, rejoicing it again after long wintry months, nourishing my mind on it, the sight of it was all I wanted. At 24 inches in length, with a preposterously long down-curved bill, the curlew is an outsized and distinctive wader. Put it down in the field, though, and it disappears in a Houdini piece of legerdemain. It takes several sweeps of the binoculars until I locate the female who is pulling at a clump of dry grass. The male has already scraped a depression into a sward, about 20 yards out from the hedge. His DIY has been done half-heartedly, in a manner a man would understand and a wife condemn. Two days later, she is sitting tight on her eggs. To help me locate the nest again, I tie a white rag in the hedge directly behind it. I've taken up observational residence in the bottom of the far hedge, the four-foot isosceles triangle where the hazel is broken down and nettles rampage and the sheep shouted from the sun. Every field should have a neglected corner. While I peer through the shambles of decaying hazel across the field and see almost everywhere, it is sitting inside this gone feral space that I am most aware of the immediacy of beauty, the beauty of immediacy. The hazel screen obliges concentration on the things of the close. There is a cough mixture whiff of ground ivy and the whirling black flies so small that I can barely see them, whose name I do not know and never will. The vine of the ivy winds up in the faultless helix, then I see the paradise blue of the dog violet, dog being an unkind reference to its lack of perfume, the pale green towers of Jack by the Head, which might be better named as Jack Beanstalk. But rub a leaf and you will know why it is also garlic mustard. Have you ever stopped to notice how perfect are the curves of an earwig's rear pincer, or how like amber an earwig's body is? I am transfixed by my own prison. Through the bars of the branches, however, and past their skittering lights, I'm not oblivious to the fox, because movement always gives the predator away, as surely as it gives the game away. The fox knows the curlew is there somewhere in the field. It stands intent, 
It sniffs and it stares. The curlew does not move. Curlew make good eating and used to be as popular on the human table as in the fox's den. According to Poulterer's prices fixed by order of Edward I in 1275, the curlew was three pence a curved head. Neither by sight nor by nose does the fox locate the curlew, and it lopes away, disgusted at its own failure. The fox. Now, the Observer reviewer Tom Cox wrote that characters are like characters in an HBO drama in this, and the fox is a recurrent baddie along with the magpie. A, a reminder that actually nature isn't idyllic at all. There is this sort of... A vicious war for survival going on. Um, there is a vicious war for survival. I mean, I, I'm one of those people who really sits on the fences on foxes because I absolutely loathe the fox when it kills my lambs. I loathe the fox when it takes my chickens. But, you know, I can't help admire its cunning ability to actually do those things um, despite some of my best effort. But because we know each other, there's a kind of slight respect as well. So, in fact, the fox will let me get closer to her than she will almost anything else because, you know, she does know me. You know, I am part of the kind of landscape too. But there's also kind of slightly shifty side to foxes. Nigel, I'm going to bring you in here. Um, consider the earwig. Have you ever considered the earwig in its amber splendour? Of course, all the time. Why would one not? <laughs> as a Londoner, presumably. Well, yes, as a, a Londoner. No, of course. And I think that's the thing about John's book. And it's about all the books on the shortlist and indeed last year's. It does make you stop and pay a bit more attention to what's going around on around you, even in London, let alone out in the real countryside. Well. Mm-hmm. You have in that passage, there are a few of, of your preoccupations in it, apart from the fox, with names, country names. That runs through the book. Well, yes, I mean, it seems a real pity to me that kind of um, the countryside is kind of Coming, well, it's becoming homogenised under agri-capitalism is essentially what's going on. You know, more and more land and farms go out to basically big, big business. And kind of in tandem with that, we're losing kind of lots of the old country ways, lots of the old country sayings and vocabulary. You know, life in the countryside is becoming quite homogenised. And I really kind of regret that. And it's quite interesting um, in my book, I, I talk about some of the lost bird names and lost flower names. Uh, and in fact, Robert McFarlane's new book, Landmarks, is actually about kind of the, the same thing. And Flower names have always um, really intrigued me because um, vernacular flower names are often a bit sort of racy and naughty, really. They're kind of the countryside equivalent of saucy seaside postcards. Well, cuckoo pint is kind of favourite because um, pint actually means um, penis. And it actually refers to the fact that the cuckoo pint, the, um, late, on the later stage of its growth, it has this kind of thing which looks remarkably like a willy in a vagina. <laughs> so it kind of goes on these kind of names like Parsons, Billycock and, and things like this. So it's all a bit kind of carry on. I mean, as a writer, I usually try for the, the peasant poet, John Clare, but sometimes I do tend to find my inner Sid James. <laughs> Nigel, this rather vulgar strand, was that, was that one <laughs> of the bring, things bring that appealed to you? Don't bring me in on this bit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, was that the bit that appealed one to you? Uh, well, yeah, it was funny, yes, because I mean, you, you hear the, the old names and you have no idea and you think, oh, that sounds rather sweet, doesn't it? And then you hear John explains what, what those flower names actually mean. It does slightly put them in a different perspective, yeah. It beat some very well-known books, didn't it, including yeah. H's for Hawk, which yes. has been clearing up on loads and loads of prizes. Yes, it has. Tell us a little bit about the, the shortlist, six books altogether, including William Atkins' The Moor, Claxton Field Notes from a Small Planet, which is Mark Cocker, who's a great birder writer, isn't he? Fantastic writer. Great birder writer, great guardian uh, And a great writer. guardian. He's yeah, one, of, yeah. he's one, of, of, one yeah. of ours, yeah. one, of our, one of the family, as it were. And Rising Ground, A Search for Spirit of Place, which is Philip Marsden, which yeah. is a sort of different book. My question at the beginning was, what does nature writing mean to you? What does nature writing mean today? 
I think that's the funny thing that you can answer it in any number of ways and any of those books and indeed running free completely qualify as outdoor writing nature writing but they are completely different in some ways John's book is perhaps closest to Mark and his type maybe the Moor and Rising Ground are, are closest to each other or roughly comparable but they're all valid and we had a similar sort of thing in the previous year um because I think it does, it's a very hard thing to classify. And you can see that when you go into the shops, there isn't an obvious slot for it. Sometimes books are in travel writing, sometimes they're in nature. So there's no one easy solution, which is why it, it makes it both hard for the judges, but also rewarding because you haven't got six books that are pretty much the same sort of thing doing the same sort of thing. They're all very different in scope. I think you've got two things going on. You've got a new breed of outdoor writers, some of which is, is has a, a political dimension to it, just as John's book uh, is not fuming against agribusiness, but there's a strong undercurrent there. Um, so you have that dimension, you have minutely observed books, uh, you have books that are putting, like H's Vahor, are putting human dilemma in the context of the outdoor world. They quite often combine a couple of different things, don't they? Yes. Like, I mean, this combines, I said it's it's about a tiny area, but actually it's it's deep history as well, isn't it? Everything mm. has its history. Yeah. I, I'm not being sort of loose in my terminology here. I, I, I say to the English side, because I don't like making generalisations about other nations. But I mean, meadows are actually incredibly important to the kind of English psyche. I mean, you know, you have Runnymede for a start, you don't you, you know, the Magna Carta. Edward Thomas went off to fight in the First World War literally for English fields. He picked up a piece of English earth and said, I'm going off to fight for this. You have all those expressions like pastures new, you know, what is English national dish? Well, dish, well, it's roast beef, which comes out, out of meadows. I think one of the things that is, well, I, I absolutely agree with Nigel, I think one of the things that's kind of um, making this kind of renaissance is the urgency um, is helping a level of kind of artistry. I don't really want to put my own book in that sense, but I, I, I did feel writing it, that it was the kind of passion that made me try very hard to express things in a way that I thought would communicate what was necessary. And I think a lot of nature writers have a kind of sense of urgency. You know, they look at the natural world in Britain and are extremely worried by it. I mean, I looked at my fellow shortlisties last night and, you know, most are sort of, you know, sort of 40, 50 age. And I think, you know, we can probably remember the 1970s. And since the 1970s, there's been this incredible decline in the wildlife and uh, you know, floral life of Britain. And I, I think because we're kind of old enough to remember what things used to be like in the 1970s. I do think, having talked to some other nature writers, there's that kind of sense of urgency of really wanting to tell people. Do you feel you're, you're part of a community of nature writers, or are you a sole traveller? Um, I think I'm probably slightly different to most nature writers, because you know, I am a, a working farmer. I mean, I, I, yeah, as a kind of peasant farmer, I don't have that much time for actually... I was going to ask um, where actually reading write. other people's books, Thank to be honest. for electric light. Uh, yes, precisely. Um, so I don't have that as much time as I would like. Um, but, you know, there are lots of you know, um, current nature writers um, I do like. I, I also find myself very much going back to old-fashioned... Um, farming books because to the extent you, you read what you are and as a kind of peasant farmer I spend a lot of my time I find reading sort of um, John Clare and John Stuart Collins from the Second World War kind of you know texts I think um, really you know from the 19th century you know that you kind of promote and explain the kind of organic wildlife conservation kind of farming that I'm interested in. So I, I'm a practical farmer who happens to write and I think that probably makes me slightly different to a lot of nature writers. What I'm trying to do very much is give people the view from within 
not always observing from the outside, but actually tell people how it actually is like to actually work the land and be you know, part of the working countryside. It probably comes across in a slightly oblique way, Medland, and I sort of hope it's oblique. I am very much looking for a kind of communion with nature. Um, I suspect and feel this kind of you know, spiritual aspect to nature that one can actually get into relationship with. I think that's a very strong kind of country thing. It kind of means the kind of whole ritual thing um, to do with you know church calendars and things. It has a kind of perhaps more resonance than it does in urban society. I mean, is it child? I used to go to Plough Sunday, for instance. It's an extraordinary thing, isn't it? You actually, go to church and have the plough blessed. And this is latest nineteen seventies. Um, so I'm I'm very aware that I'm I'm trying to find a kind of communion w- with nature. But I mean, I think that's just because, as I say, I'm. I'm a, peasant farm from a kind of peasant background and, and these things are still sort of very strongly part of that culture well I, I have to release you now to go you're going to go and plant a wheat field i am because i have a, a yearning to recreate um a kind of traditional arable field in fact exactly the sort of thing that john constable painted an old-fashioned wheat field with wild flowers growing in it and i think they're probably only a handful, I mean literally a handful left in Britain. But it is something that can actually be recreated. So I'm actually going back um, to sit on a tractor um, this evening and, and getting my heritage wheat and, and my wildflowers to recreate a traditional cornfield. Well, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you, Nigel. Well. Pleasure. Pleasure. Guardian listeners get the latest news, but they can also create it. With our sponsor Squarespace, you can easily create an elegant website for your personal brand, online store, business, personal portfolio, or blog. Whoever you are, Squarespace's simple tools and elegant designs make your ideas newsworthy and accessible to any audience. Try it at squarespace.com and use the offer Guardian to get 10% off. This is the biggest story in the world. We will look back on these times and we will think, what on earth were we doing? From The Guardian. This is a story about people and this is a story about possibility. It's a story that's eluded us for decades. A topic which The Guardian is now throwing itself wholeheartedly into. I'd seen how we'd done it on other things. Climate change. So we're letting you in behind the scenes. Editorial meetings, bids for commissions. You'll hear what works as well as our mistakes. And along the way, you can judge how we do. Is there a new way to make the world care? The biggest story in the world on The Guardian. I like to rise when the sun she rises early in the morning. John Lewis Stemple and Nigel Roby. Meadowland is out now in paperback from Transworld. Now we move from birds and foxes to wolves with our next guest, Sarah Hall, whose latest novel deals with the rewilding of the very part of the English countryside that Alfred Wainwright wrote about all those years ago, the Lake District. She joins us down the line from her home in Essex, Sarah? Norwich, actually, Norfolk. Norfolk. Mm. How come you're in Norfolk? You write so much about the Lake District. I know. I seem to write about the Lake District not while I'm living there, which is quite nice. I think you need a long lens sometime to really get a good vision of a place. And tell us about 
the setting of the wolf border. It's it, it's set in somewhere called Annadale, which doesn't exist, but there is an Annadale water with an E. Isn't That's there? right. I wondered yes. how directly you'd mapped it onto the territory. Well, it's slightly mapped. Yes, and the name's similar, and it's it's very it's western lying in the Lake District and very wild. So Annadale is a you know it's an estate and a valley of the mind really. I've I've started tinkering around with the Lakeland topography, which is fun actually. And if you're writing a speculative novel, I think it, it's fine in a way to sort of mess around with place names as well and invent areas so the estate in the novel is much bigger than anything exists at the moment and it needs to be that big to house this wolf project so there are some there are some similarities it's very much the lake district i think and hopefully you can see and taste and 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 hear and recognize the lake district in the pages but it is it's fictional So the the estate that you referred to belongs to Thomas Pennington, 11th Earl of Annadale. That's right. <laughs> who has this wacky aristocratic project to rewild the borderland between England and Scotland. Well, actually, it's on his estate, but it is right up against the borders. That's right, yeah. I mean, he's he's a sort of an eco-warrior character. and A bit like Prince Charles? Um, not especially like Prince Charles. I think, I think probably a bit more intelligent than Prince Charles. <laughs> Um, but certainly, certainly a man of a sort of power and in a way vision, although you're never quite sure what his motives are. Certainly the main character, Rachel, is never quite sure what his motives are. And he seems to be using his powers for good. But then as the novel progresses, there is this question over his involvement and what he actually wants. And he is he is interested in rewilding and he's been involved with quite a few environmental projects. And he has the land to set up this enclosure, which is going to be free roaming. And that's about as, as good as he can get so far. He would like to see the return of certain species but you know at the moment he's having to just do it all on his estate he does certainly dive in at the deep end doesn't he he chooses the gray wolf as the thing to reintroduce which is not at all popular with the locals for obvious reasons in a farming area no that's right and even though um, the enclosure has this giant fence which is supposedly wolf proof people are very nervous about the situation which is fairly true to life I mean the um, the polls that have been done and the questionnaires about reintroduction of, of big predators like wolves you do find it's a very divisive issue uh, people worrying kind of irrationally about some things to do with the predators particularly the wolf because it's not existed in Britain for 500 years so it's sort of it just exists in in the sort of imagination in the sort of fairy tale land of horror stories really this is true to life i think when you ask people about wolves they do get a little bit nervous they don't quite understand that they wouldn't really be going after humans i think there is that sense of oh my goodness you know the wolf will be sneaking upstairs and eating my children they're an apex predator and you say the country isn't ready for an apex predator um but there's an awful lot of wolf stuff in it did you have to do a lot of research i did i became the biggest wolf bore imaginable for about two years while i was researching anytime i was having tea with someone or dinner with them i'd be reeling out a new wolf fact that i'd read about and it, i think it got quite tedious for everyone some of my friends were timing how long it would take me to mention wolves when i was in their company it's a bit like oxford and cambridge you know people are supposed to mention they've been within about 18 seconds and i was the same with my new wolf fact but I loved it. It was fascinating research. And I, um, you know, I got hold of this giant compendium of, of wolf behaviour and ecology, which was fascinating. And I, um, I worked with a woman who works at the Reading Wolf Centre. She was absolutely wonderful and read through my proofs as well and just did all the kind of fact checking for me. Um, and I went down and visited her and saw the wolves that they have. And I spent some time actually in Idaho. You know, I went to see the Sawtooth Pack while I was living in America. So there was uh, over the years, there's been quite a lot of interest in wolves. And then it became more focused, you know, in terms of what was going to be useful for the novel. 
Rachel actually begins the novel in Idaho on a wolf reservation. That's right, yes. And I think anyone who who is studying wolf behaviour and biology would certainly be slightly nomadic. You know, you'd have to go where the projects are. And it seemed quite natural for her to be working in North America because there are quite a few reintroduction projects and monitoring projects. So it seemed a good place for her to be. And it's also very interesting to compare the sort of national parks in America and Britain. You know, if you're looking at what wild spaces we have left here, uh, it's sort of interesting to pit them against the great wildernesses of North America and really think about, you know, what the wild means to us and what it means to the rest of the world. Let's move on to Rachel in more detail. Um, She's sort of a bit, she's very solitary, isn't she? She's a slightly wolfish figure herself. She is, she is. And at one point, her brother describes her as being exposed. You know, she's sort of left out on the moors as a kid, left to kind of roam around. And I think that solitary existence starts in childhood for her and then conveys through the rest of her life. But really, the novel, you know, while it is about a reintroduction project, it's also about Rachel's development emotionally and psychologically. Uh, She begins the novel estranged from her family and really has to put her relationships back in order. And so I was quite interested in seeing her broaden out as a character. I mean, she never... I think she never fully warms up. There's there's a slightly cold aspect to her, which I'm very interested in as a writer. That is sort of it's fascinating to have those characters who have that kind of glint at their centre. You know, you know, they're never quite going to be not sharp. But um, she she comes a long way in the book, I think. Although she is a scratchy character, as you've said, she does have relationships. One is with her rather dysfunctional brother. Another is with the local vet. Alexander. Yeah, and she sort of falls into that. I mean, he's he's the vet that's overseeing the wolf project, so he's coming every week to monitor them and test them and make sure they're okay. And um, it's not really against her will, but it, and it's she's in a rather strange position when she when she starts seeing him. I think a few people have been unsettled by you know what's going on between the two of them and, and when it happens. But um, yes, he's a very nice, straightforward Cumbrian bloke, and, and and she sort of he sort of wins her over with that. She has a baby, among other things. That's right. Um, yes, she does. And, and it's fascinating, her relation. You've, you've also just recently had a baby. I have, I have. I had the baby after writing the, the novel, which was probably the wrong way around to do it. Although maybe not, because it meant I got the novel written. But I was able to, luckily, have enough time with the page proofs to go back through and, and figure out whether I'd, I'd got some things right and some things wrong. Um, so it was your first, this is your first baby? It is, yes. And the reason I ask is not to be prurient, is just because there is an awful lot about the intensity and the animalness of the bonding between a mother and a newborn. Yeah, it's a very interesting experience, you know, and, and um, lots of women go through this experience and it's quite hard to express fully. And, you know, uh, often mothers find themselves in an extremely tired fugue state where you're forgetting things all the time and uh, you're just struggling to kind of hold down a day-to-day existence. And it is a very interesting condition. Um, you know, hopefully what you're doing as a novelist is not boring people with a character's condition in the book, but actually, y- you know, sort of, hoping to strike some sympathetic notes or at least show people what an experience might be like because I think that's the great thing about humanity isn't it we try and understand each other's experiences and and sort of learn a bit more that way obviously it's fiction but I just wondered whether you revisited it once you'd had your baby and found that you'd got things wrong slightly I mean I think on the whole, I was pleased. And I did, you know, I was consulting friends who were mothers along the way. So I, I didn't feel I was groping around in the dark too much. And, you know, it's a sort of, it's it's a common state. People have children all the time. So you feel like you've been involved with that through your life. And it's not impossible to guess at things. But I, I was quite careful to sort of have a couple of very intense readers as I wrote it. And then I did go back. And mostly I felt okay. But there were little details that I, I felt I could bring to it, having gone through the experience. And some of those were just kind of strange, visceral body details, you know 
know that you, you wouldn't really know what that felt like unless you you know it had happened to you so it was you know it was it was handy to be able to cross check that way it's quite a timeless setting in a way she lives in seldom seen cottage in in a landscape that's that's been pretty much untouched but you also put in quite a few um, very contemporary issues drug addiction comes up in it divorce she's a single parent yes that's right yeah I mean um, it's funny isn't it the Lake District has this terribly nostalgic aura around it and you can go there and think oh maybe it looked this way a hundred years ago but actually you know it's not immune from the state of the nation and what's going on so I did want to bring in the kind of grand political forces and day-to-day you know domestic struggles that people have it's the same it's just that the setting is slightly wilder. We, we haven't touched on the politics and the politics, it's fascinating the way you deal with the politics because they run underneath, it's like a subterranean stream underneath this quite large novel until it suddenly bursts out up right at the end and it's yeah. the, the politics of devolution basically. That's right. Yes, it is. Yeah. And I mean, you know, you have to be careful when you're writing. If, you, if you're dealing with politics, you don't want to end up writing a manifesto or, or having it be read that way. So but it was interesting to me as I was writing the book, you know, things were gearing up for the referendum, uh, you know, the Scottish referendum. And I felt like that couldn't be ignored. That's a huge thing that this country faced, you know, the possible breakup of a union. And that would have it would have had. Well, and it still might, actually. This is an active issue. It would have great effect or maybe not as great effect as people people think. Um, so I was interested and, and I, I don't feel that writing it at the time when all that was about to happen, I don't feel like I could not have dealt with it somehow. Well, it, it hasn't gone away, has it? Actually, I was thinking fortuitously for you because when I read it first in proof, the whole business was still very live and I thought, oh my goodness, this is a novel that might date very quickly right. but actually yeah. the Scots have not given up on this bone have they? No of course not and I think it was what, what was it 48-49% voted yes I mean it's not an issue that's going to go away anytime soon and you know with the, with the election coming up in only a few weeks it's going to be very important. Also I do think it would have dated the novel because there's a particular incident in it but actually it's very interesting to have a kind of counterfactual aspect to something you know the second world war there are quite a few novels out now that uh, offer a kind of counterfactual experience the nazis have invaded that type of thing so there's always room for these things and in some ways the sort of speculation is is can be very interesting i hope i don't know whether we should really reveal what the counterfactual is because it it's so much part of the denouement of the novel isn't it <laughs> well people can probably guess that yeah. you no know, the scots vote yes so scotland is in the process of becoming um, an independent nation in the book you, you describe it as a speculative novel, and I'm interested in that. So you're venturing into a territory that, that sort of spreads all the way from science fiction to fantasy to the sort of novel you're writing. Yeah. Is this something new to you? Um, I don't know. I suppose the Carhollen Army, you could also describe it as science fiction or speculative. And that's, a, you know, that's another variation of the state we find ourselves in now. And again, I'm, I am very interested uh, in those notions and those possibilities, uh, the idea that you know, if you're constructing a world in the book, you only have to make a few small adjustments and you've created another world which is sort of bifurcated. It's familiar, but it's offering you something else to think about. I, do, I love that about fiction, the fact that you can be offered up a world that seems real sometimes, but makes you think. It makes you think about some of the issues that are running now and what would happen. What if? What if, you know, climate change kicked in? What if, you know, a big predator was reintroduced to Britain? How do we feel about that now? Borders are a big issue in this. I mean, you've obviously got borders in the title. The estate is on the Scottish border. But also I wondered the extent to which the border refers to borders between forms of fiction, which this novel straddles. I think that's true. Um, 
I suppose I don't like the idea of, of sort of strict borders in fiction that you're not allowed to pass over. I mean, the, the beauty as a novelist is that you can play around. And I don't like the idea of a kind of pure genre that only has meaning to a certain degree or, or has a certain list of, of constructs that you need within it. So c- certainly if you're if you're going to invent something, which a novel is, it's you know 400 pages of invention, you know, you may as well have some fun. Thanks, Sarah. Let's just end with a passage of first-hand introduction to the wolves at the centre of the story. She follows signs for British Airways World Cargo. She is early, but the flight is also scheduled to arrive early. On the link road, an airbus roars overhead, tilting and straightening, its wheels locked, its undercarriage close enough to see scratches in the paint. If everything goes to plan, they will be back in Annadale by the early afternoon. The sedation is strong enough that they will not have been disturbed by the flight and the transit north, but she does not want them under for too long. She parks at the side of the cargo terminal. The Vargas men are waiting in reception, dressed formally in company jackets, carrying cases in which are plastic suits and masks. She too is equipped with a quarantine suit. She greets them and they exchange a few words. They are polite, professional, ex-military, she suspects. She spends 20 minutes with the airport officials. The paperwork is all in order. Payment is made. Soon she is called through. She changes into the suit and goes into the disinfected unloading zone. The crates are brought in, the two Vargas men wheeling them slowly, unfazed by the contents of the covered structures. In bold print, the labels read, Live animals, do not tip. The blue transport van is being reversed into the secondary loading bay, the back doors opened. Rachel gently lifts the overlay on the first crate and opens the small viewing hatch. She shines a torch, the female. Darkness, portions of a hind leg, long crescent-shaped claws. Her breath sounds are even. Thomas has suggested not naming them until they arrive, almost superstitiously, like a father with newborns. Let's see what their personalities are. But Rachel has already christened her, after seeing the photograph sent by Stefan and noticing an uncanny resemblance to a particular starlet. The thin nose, tilted eyes and lupine brows, a face from Hollywood past, Merle Oberon, Merle. She pulls the cover back down. She moves to the second crate and checks the mail. He is big, bigger than she anticipated, pale fur with long black guard hairs. She listens, then briefly shines the torch inside. The glimmer of a slit eye, atypical blue. The Rayleigh effect. Somehow it is harder, even than with humans, to remember that there is no real colour. He is not alert. There's enough meat and water. She takes the docket out of the waterproof shield, scans and signs it. They are brought out to the truck and loaded carefully. The Vargas men keep the crates level, moving swiftly but carefully. The transport company is top of the range. Bulletproof glass, armoured siding. She would not be surprised if they were equipped to carry nuclear arms, presidents. The crates are secured to the bed of the van and the doors shut. On the way out of the airport, she follows at a safe distance. The van keeps to 65 miles per hour. She checks her mirrors with tense regularity for idiotic drivers, problems, the police. The journey could not be more regulated but it still feels like a bank robbery, a crime, like the van is filled with explosives. Warning signs flash overhead. Roadworks around Birmingham, long delays. 
She follows the Vargas van onto the M6 toll road, which is glossy and empty. They pass through the Midlands, black country residue, towns bleeding together along the river basin. It would have been easy to have taken them from visitor centres in Norfolk or Reading, but they must be unhabituated. They must understand range, be able to hunt, or the project will not work. The blue van makes steady progress. By Manchester, she begins to relax. The roads are relatively clear. She turns the radio on, then off again. The tarmac hums under the wheels. The road rises and falls, then everything speeds up again. There are multiple lanes around Preston, a cavalcade of undertaking and overtaking. She grips the wheel tightly, flashing her lights and cursing as a car veers between her and the transport van, across three lanes, into the slip road. The Northern Cross motorways draw much of the traffic off. After Lancaster, the way is clear. They exit the motorway and take the dual carriageway along the county's southern edge. Oyster-coloured skies above Cumbria. The estuary glimmers in the sunlight. They continue on into the mountains sedately, like some kind of royal procession, the diplomatic arrival of a crowned couple. And it is historic, she thinks. It's 500 years since their extermination on the island. They're a distant memory, a mythical thing. Britain has altered radically, as has her iconography of wilderness, her totems. Once in situ, she knows they will divide the country, just as they will quarter the imagination again. Always the same polar arguments. Last year, during documentary filming at Chief Joseph, two hunters had shouted in her face, they devour their victims alive while their hearts are still beating. They revel in death. As if the animals were some kind of biblical plague. Many do believe it. She had calmly explained on camera the hierarchy and tactics of the hunt. The fact that 80% of hunts fail. The fact that herds, after the culling of the weak by predators, are always healthier. Facts versus fear, hatred and irrationality. As for glee during a kill, such a thing cannot be ascertained, though females seem to express great excitement the first time they hunt after a new litter has been weaned. Ahead, the mountains seem to smoke, white clouds pluming above, as if they were not dead volcanoes, but live. The new bracken is electric green in the lower valleys. She leaves Alexander a message so that he will know to set off. She slows for a humpback bridge and sounds the horn to warn oncoming traffic, checks her rearview mirror. The van is close behind, carefully navigating the narrow structure, its wing mirrors only inches from the stone walls. The screen is tinted. She cannot see the drivers. Its hold might be carrying anything, gold bullion, masterpieces, the body of Jesus Christ. There has not been a public announcement about the arrival. She does not want to risk any controversy. The Annadale wolves are being brought in, to all intents and purposes secretly, under the radar, like contraband. Merle and Ra arriving in the UK. The Wolf Border is published by Faber. And I'm afraid that's all we have for you this week. Next week, we're going to be visiting libraries. But for now, from me, Claire Armistead, and my producer, Eva Krishak, goodbye. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio.